Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Live from TSPN. That is the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is Friday, December the 2nd, 2011, and this is episode 794 of the Survival Podcast. And if... uh If I sound kind of jazzed up today, it's because for the second time in the history of the Survival Podcast, I get to interview an actual best-selling author. That is Matthew Stein, the uh, the author of the previous bestseller, When Technology Fails, and uh, the, the author of a new book, which will probably also be a uh, bestseller, When Disaster Strikes. Matt's going to be with us in just a moment to talk with us about some forward-looking things and things we can do to be prepared, and some things that maybe you don't think of with your with your daily prepping. I think this will be the first of many interviews with Matthew. Uh, we seem to get along great when we t- chatted offline, so I'll have him here in just a second. Before I bring him on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff Gleason, The Berkey guy. Now, what are you going to get from the Berkey guy? I know this might be shocking. I know this might be completely unexpected, but the Berkey guy sells Berkey water filtration systems. And everybody knows Berkey is one of the best water filtration systems you can get, one of the most cost-effective systems you can get, and it looks beautiful in your home. Whether you do the clear one or the stainless steel one, it doesn't matter. Great water, great quality, great looking, simple, easy, bulletproof system. But why, when you can get Berkey's anywhere, would you go to the Berkey guy? Well, first of all, he's the Berkey guy. Of course you're going to go to the Berkey guy to get your Berkey system. But seriously, in over two and a half years of sponsoring this show, you know how many complaints I've had about Jeff Gleason from my audience? Zero. None. Nada. Zilch. What I hear is, hey, there was a mess up and Jeff broke his neck to fix it for me. I hear that once in a while. Or I ordered from him and it was flawless. Those are the two things I hear. So you know you're going to get great pricing and great service from a guy that cares about his customers the way I care about you when you deal with the murky guy. That's why you want to deal with Jeff Gleason. Can't recommend the man highly enough. He has some other cool stuff for your preps when you're at his website, which is at directive21.com. Remember, the best way to find the Berkey guy and all of our sponsors, go to thesurvivalpodcast.com first and look for their banners in the right-hand margin. Then you know you're dealing with a real sponsor, not a cheap imitator of a sponsor. Next up today, shelfreliance.com. Notice I said a shelf. A shelf like something you put stuff on instead of self like you yourself. That's because Shelf Reliance specializes in innovative food storage solutions that allow you to eat what you store and store what you eat. Top quality uh, food storage systems from their large systems like the Harvest 72, which I keep in my own closet in our master bedroom, stock full of the canned foods that we have for our preps, and we always rotate them when we eat, we store them, store we eat. They also have the Thrive brand of long-term food storage products, best-tasting long-term food storage products I have ever eaten myself, food you'd be happy to eat any given day, and you know it's going to be there for 10 years or more, ensuring your future. So check out 
uh, shelfreliance.com today. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I'm probably more active on Facebook than anywhere else, but we do have a lot of YouTube videos that have been coming out and a lot more planned. I might shoot some video today, another update to the Google Culture Project. I've got one coming out on knife sharpening where uh, Patrick Rorman uh, did a video on how to do that. I'll be getting that going for you guys by next week. So lots of cool stuff on YouTube as well. But if you want to engage with me, get over to Facebook and like our fan page. A lot of you guys have been trying to like hook up with me as a friend on Facebook. Trust me, I don't pay any attention to that side of Facebook. When I'm on Facebook, I'm on the fan page engaging with my audience because you guys are important to me. That's the place to engage with me on Facebook. Uh, also, you can find us on the Prepper Podcast Radio Network now. We're over there with some other really great podcasts you might want to check out. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get over $150 worth of free ebooks. You get discounts to 32 different supporting vendors. You get some video content that's available nowhere else. And guess what? Guess what? You're supporting the show. And you're doing it normally at 20 cents an episode, which I think is a great deal because of all the stuff you get back. But this month, since it's the holidays, I'm running a sale until December 15th. Discount code SNOW. We're all hoping for snow for Christmas. At least most of us are. And uh, use the discount code SNOW. Get your first year for 30 bucks. Full details on that. There'll be a link in today's show notes for you if you want more details than that. But when you sign up online or send in the form, pay by check, money order, or what have you, just put snow on the form. And as long as it's postmarked by December 15th, we will honor it. If you pay by silver using the discount code, we'll just give you 14 months of a membership instead of 12. With that, I've got everything wrapped up. I want to introduce our special guest today. Again, Matthew Stein is the author of When Disaster Strikes and previously the author of another great book called When Technology Fails. Uh, the new book is a comprehensive guide to emergency planning and crisis survival. The book has received excellent advanced praise from experts on survival and disaster preparedness. That includes me, folks, because I haven't been able to fully read the book as busy as I've been, but I did get an advanced copy. I did take a look at it. Absolutely fabulous. Stein is a graduate of the Massachusetts, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he majored in mechanical engineering. So he's a switched-on guy. He's dedicated his life to preparedness and analyzing threats. He's here to talk to us about all of that stuff today. Hey, Matthew, thanks for joining us, and welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks a lot, Jack. It's a pleasure to be on your show today. Yeah, you know, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Um, you know, a guy like you, you've written a couple books we just uh, mentioned when I introduced you. And uh, you've got your latest book out, When Disaster Strikes, and your previous book, When Technology Fails. I, I think that um, there's a lot of things that, you know, the kind of the basic stuff uh, that, that every author in a book like that has to cover that we talk about every day here. But I also know that you've brought up some things that are maybe often overlooked by people, even people that kind of spend their time focused on this. So, you know, just kind of starting out with, you know, the 72-hour emergency kit stuff, what are some of the unique items you recommend that are not typical in a grab-and-go kit? Okay, well, probably the one that's most atypical is the colloidal silver generator. You know, when when you see pictures of a disaster, what do you see? You see people who are walking down the road, and they're often sick, they're often cold and wet, they're often hurt, and they're usually thirsty, and they usually don't have any food or supplies of them. So that's kind of a perfect opportunity for pandemic to happen, or certainly for lots of people to get sick, and you see that over and over again in earthquakes. So if you have a colloidal silver generator on hand, then you can make kind of a pharmacy in a jar. You can make your own solution that's antiseptic, antibiotic, it's toxic to all known pathogenic bacteria. Now, 
2,000 years ago, Alexander the Great didn't know anything about germ theory, but he knew that if he stored water for his men in wooden barrels or goat skins, you know, skin skin bags and wooden barrels, that after a week or so, the water would turn and his men would start getting sick. And the soldier that's vomiting and has diarrhea all over the place, not much good in the battlefield. But he also knew that if you stored water for the soldiers in silver urns, then they stayed healthy. Now, it turns out that small, tiny charged particles of silver are toxic to all known pathogenic bacteria. And uh, so, you know, you need to have that on hand in the event of A, medicine's not available, or B, medicine's not working. You know, we live in a day and age of, of antibiotic-resistant superbugs. And so it only makes sense that you have a, a kit on hand to help deal with a variety of scenarios of bugs and viruses that may not be responding to medicine or certainly won't respond to, to medicine if there's no medicine to be had. That's, that's really interesting. It's not something I've ever really gone into before. So what exactly is a colloidal silver generator? Well, I show you in both of my books, I have a diagram, simple diagram for making your own silver generator. And essentially, if you've got three 9-volt batteries in series and some pure silver wires, then when you put them in like a jar of a tall glass or jar, preferably glass and not plastic, then uh, you'll see what looks like tiny wisps of smoke coming off the silver rods inside the wire, inside the water. And those tiny wisps of smoke, obviously they're in water, they're not smoke, but what they are is super tiny charged particles of silver that become a colloid, which means they um, they stay in, they're so small that they stay in solution even though it's not dissolved, like salt dissolves in water and, and you can't find a particle of salt, it's just dissolved in water. Well, silver is not dissolved in the water, it's tiny silver particles that are suspended in the water. And uh, now there's ways of making a better quality silver with a more more complicated circuit that makes like an ionic colloidal silver, and those you can find plans in the internet. Uh, the inventor of them, Bob Beck, who invented them about uh, 20 or 30 years ago, uh, he went to sleep one night wondering how he could make tiny charred silver particles for medical use to help himself heal. He was suffering from really bad uh, health problems at the time. He read some uh, groundbreaking research by, this is what's confusing, uh, Robert Becker, who was an orthopedic surgeon and medical researcher who spent decades looking at the body's microelectric healing mechanisms. Well, Robert Becker, the orthopedic surgeon, found that tiny charged silver particles boosted the body's healing mechanism and killed pathogenic bacteria. He was able to save a bunch of people in his research study who were scheduled for amputations because their legs weren't healing or arms weren't healing and, and various infections were keeping their body from healing, and he was able to save those limbs. Well, Bob Beck, the physicist and inventor, he invented the electronic flashbulb when he was 19 years old, uh, that people like my age, 50s, who grew up using those flashbulbs, well, they're all based on Bob Beck's uh, invention back in the 20s or something. Anyway, Bob Beck went to sleep wondering how to make these tiny charged particles uh, that were talked about in Robert Becker's uh, groundbreaking research, and he woke up in the morning with the modern colloidal silver generator plans in his head. You know, talk about a blast from above. Wow. 
Also, but it also doesn't sound like I need to go out and spend. I'm on a website right now, offer to sell me one for a thousand bucks. Well, you can go to Soda Instruments, S O T A, and buy. And and the the founder Soda actually, his wife was suffering from chronic fatigue and Epstein Barr, and she basically was suicidal and put on bunches of weight and had to sleep 14 hours a day and couldn't even do the laundry or make food for her kids. She'd been a uh, she'd been an executive in an athletic clothing company and she'd been quite athletic and quite healthy before stricken by this. So uh, she and her husband read about Bob Beck giving a talk in Vancouver. So they piled in the car and went to Vancouver to listen to Beck's talk. This is like in the late 1990s, and then they heard his talk. And her husband's an electrical engineer, so they teamed up with Beck. And he built himself the base and the, the devices for the Beck protocol. It's actually four things: blood electrification, colloidal silver, uh, blood oxygenation through drinking highly ozonated, freshly ozonated water, and the fourth one is. Uh, magnetic pulsing, and uh, so she used these instruments that her husband built based on Beck's diagrams, and in 30 days, she significantly improved, and in 90 days, 100% better, so they found Soda Instruments to work with Beck to start bringing these instruments to the, to the world, and so if you want to buy one off the shelf, I like this silver pulser from Soda, because it does blood electrification along with making colloidal silver, it makes a high-quality ionic silver. Uh, better quality, low smaller particle silver than than the uh, the cheap version. I show people how to make in my book, but they both work. Very cool, very cool. Hey, one of the, the real heart of what I wanted to get in with you today, though, and I just want to give you a chance to kind of mention something like that at the beginning, get people thinking. But you've written about what you call the perfect storm: six trends converging on collapse. And uh, obviously, that as soon as I heard that, that piqued my interest. So you want to maybe just start out with what's the uh, what's the first trend? Okay, well, let me go over them real briefly. And okay, I'll go over them in a little little bit more depth on each one. But briefly, here are the six trends. The first one is the peak in world oil production, and, and we're seeing we're, we're basically in the start of the storm on that one. And it's going to get a whole lot worse. The second one is climate change. I call it global weirding. It's it's uh, certain, it's often called global warming, but it's not always warmer. But anybody who's been around for a few decades know that the weather's much less stable and it's all over the map these days. You know, drier, hotter hots, colder colds, worse droughts, worse floods, worse tornadoes, worse hurricanes. You know, it's just all over the map. Number three is collapse of the world's oceans. That includes fisheries, acidification, the coral reefs, and the planktons. Number four is the world's forests, and we've cut down over half of them, pretty much close to two-thirds, most of that in the last 30 years. And number five is the world food crisis, a combination of water, soils, and climate change. And number six is population. So uh, now that I've given you them briefly, let me talk about each one in a little more depth. Now, each of these trends individually is a potential civilization buster. And, you know, maybe one or two of these trends won't happen or won't happen as fast as the others. But collectively, they're really going to change the world as we know it, and it's going to happen rather quickly. And we're seeing, we're kind of at the start of this huge shift due to all of these starting to converge right now. And I think we're going to see it get a whole lot worse before it gets better. And uh, hopefully we'll see it get better. Now, as a, I'm an MIT-trained engineer, 
you know, Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering. And But everybody in high school draws graphs. And you know, if the graph is steeply headed down toward the bottom, you don't do something different, it's going to hit bottom. Now, Albert Einstein's been quoted as saying, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And I tend to reply, well, that's human nature. I mean, how many times it's like, well, it didn't work that time, so let me try harder this time, and maybe I'll do the same thing, and maybe it'll work. So that's kind of human nature. But right now, we've got the future of our world in question. So let's go back to each of these changes. Now, one of the reasons I focus often on peak oil is that peak oil is in our face, and it's happening, and it's going to hit us very quickly, And whereas some of these others, you know, the exact time frame in which they hit us and how bad they get to crisis proportions is not really known, but peak oil is like here. So let me just explain this a little bit. Uh, every oil field in the world, you know, it takes time to find these oil fields, and, and then it's after 10 years after they decide they want to develop an oil field, it takes like 10 years to get all the infrastructure in place to start pumping and actually start making money and selling oil off of that. Well, in the world, there's like something like six giant fields. And every one of these six has passed its peak and is declining now. So, for instance, Mexico, Cantrell Oil Field. The Mexican government gets most of the money they survive on is because it's a, it's a government-owned, nationalized petroleum company, like Petro petrol company in, in Russia was that way. And they make their money off of shipping oil. Well, Cantrell is depleting at 25% a year now. It's crashing. Yeah, I mean, and I talked about mean, Cantrell peaking back in, I think, 2008. Yeah, so Cantrell is, is really crashing, and they're talking about Mexico becoming an importer of oil instead of an exporter within the next two to three years. So that's going to have crisis crisis problems for the Mexican government because their main source of income is just going to be gone. Now, Saudi Arabia, they, they don't know exactly what's going on there, but looking at the satellites, they can see that they're pumping tons of, of CO2 and seawater into those wells to keep Saudi Arabia's giant field going, the Gawar field. So basically, a couple of years ago, the international, the IEA, International Energy Agency, uh, all, up until that point in time, they've been saying, don't worry, everything's okay, everything's fine, you know, peak oil is a long ways away, and we're going to be fine. Well, they're still kind of saying that, but all of a sudden, two years ago, they came out with a report saying that the world's oil fields are declining at 9.4% annually, and if you spend a lot of money on enhanced oil recovery methods, EOR, like pumping the seawater and the CO2 down in the wells, and pumping chemicals in the wells, then it's only something like 6.1% decline. Well, what does that mean? That means that in order to keep up with this decline, we have to discover a new Saudi Arabia's worth of oil like every three years from now till doomsday, and that just isn't going to happen. Well, last year, 2010, the official government report from all around the world has been, don't worry, this is a problem that's still out like 2030. But the U.S. military in April 2010 came out with a report saying that peak oil was going to be a significant shortages perhaps as soon as 2012 and crisis proportions perhaps as soon as 2015. And that was followed within two months by both the U.K. and Germany. Yeah, and then the U.S. military has begun research into how they can power their jets with either biofuels or coal-generated uh, fuels. So they clearly know something. Oh, yeah, they clearly know it. And to be honest with you, people in our government know it. I mean, Cheney Halliburton, 
you know, they, they knew exactly what's going on. And so they took the information that, you know, after 9-11, they knew that Saddam Hussein really had nothing to do with 9-11, but they turned it around and used that big pull of 9-11 and pinning it on Saddam Hussein and his weapons, quote, weapons of mass destruction to get us to invade. But they knew fair well that between Iraq and Iran, that there's a quarter of the world's known oil resources still remaining in those two countries, and they wanted to get their hands on it. And so long as Saddam Hussein had been a good old boy, and he was trained and equipped by the CIA, as long as he did their bidding and sold oil and, and stuck with, sold us their oil and stuck with the U.S. dollar for trading, then even though he was a, you know, a dastardly guy and he was, he tortured people and he killed lots of people, so long as he did our bidding, we didn't seem to mind about the bad stuff too much. But as soon as he started talking about getting off the U.S. dollar and selling his oil to the highest bidder and not caring about America, well, then then we had to you know find a way to go and invade him. So the guys in power, they knew full well what was going on. And uh, Matt Simmons, who died of a massive heart attack last year, he's been very active in the peak oil movement for a long time. And he was a personal consultant to, you know, many, many people, financial banking in the oil industry, but definitely to Halliburton and Cheney and, and the Bush family. You know, he was, he's, they, he was a personal consultant to those guys. So they knew full well, full well what was going on. Okay, so number three. Now, now oil is big. Think about it back in the 1970s, uh, Arab oil crisis. Five percent of the world's production of oil got cut by OPEC guys deciding to put the squeeze on us for our support of Israel. And within six months, oil tripled at the pump. And that kind of crisis, you're talking about those kinds of cuts happening no matter what and for the next few years from now until eternity, year after year after year. See, we fueled massive global expansion and exponential expansion with exponential use of fossil fuels. Basically, every year, it's like, you want to grow 10%? Fine. Well, we'll we'll drill and pump 10% more oil this year to support that growth. Well, since 2005, we've been dead flat. And actual production of crude oil has been dropping. But what we've been doing is ramping up biofuels and tar sand use to make up for the drop in crude. So we're used to 10% per year annual growth and now we've been flat for five years, and you've seen what that's done to the world's economy. But no matter what we do, we're passing that peak now, and we won't be able to ramp up biofuels and tar sands to keep up with this decline. So we're going to start seeing actual declines year after year after year, starting basically like probably this year, next year, and accelerating over the years. So we either get ourselves into some new technologies that get off of this, or our way of life is doomed. No matter how many wars we fight, no matter how many places we go to try and keep the oil flowing, it's not going to be enough. Yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that one of the many things that we found in the WikiLeaks controversy uh, with uh, Julian Assange and the private that released the, the, the DVD with all the data on it was that there was a cable from the chief geologist for the Saudi, Saudi government over to our Department of Interior Resources or something like that that basically said flat out, you know how we've always said we can increase production to meet whatever you need? Uh, right. We can't. 
I mean, right. so it's not like some, this isn't something out of, you know, some weird conspiracy tin hat stuff. This is chief geologist of the Saudi government over to the United States government, flat out stating, we, we're, we're there. We, we can do what we can right. do, and that's it. Right. That's, that's exactly, and that's what the whole thing is behind the, the pipeline for the biofuels in, in Alberta. And right now, people think that America gets most of its oil from the Mideast, and that's wrong. We get most of our oil from Canada. Canada is the number one supplier out of all the countries in the world to the United States. It's Canada, and that's tar sands. And I believe number two Yeah, um, yeah, and, and Mexico ain't going to be that way for very long. Sure. Unless, they, unless they're going to just stop, just say we, we value selling it to the United States more than providing oil to our people. So I don't know. You know that, and that's the kind of decisions countries are coming into. Okay, so let's get on to number three. World's oceans, 11 of 15 of the world's major ocean fisheries are either already collapsed or on the verge of collapse. Georgia's banks, the absolute richest fishery in the world, been dead for 10 years now. All those massive fleets of fish, fishing boats that used to go there, they're going somewhere else or they're sitting at home because there's no fish anymore. Every single large commercial fish species in the ocean is now estimated to be either 90% or more depleted, and that's basically on the verge of collapse if it's not already gone. We're acidifying the ocean. You know, all that carbon stuff that we're burning to keep our world going, it goes in the air. Well, the clouds rain on it, and it takes the CO2 out of the air, makes carbolic acid, makes acid rain. Well, the acid rain doesn't just fall on land and kill all of the trout lakes above uh, above 3,000 feet in the east coast, it also goes in the ocean, changes the acidification. So we're losing coral reefs. They went from something like, in four years, they went from like 10% of the world's reefs in trouble or collapse to 23% in trouble or collapse. Now we've got something like 70% of the world's reefs are in danger of collapse. And those are those are like rainforests of the ocean. Only we are not so aware of what's happening because they're kind of out of sight, out of mind under the ocean, but they're part of the carbon-oxygen cycle in the planet. You know, I'm, only- I'm glad to hear you saying some of this stuff because we're finding common ground here. Because I'm going to tell you, you skipped over two, but I am a complete disbeliever in the theory of carbon dioxide raising or carbon raising the temperature of the planet. I am not a disbeliever in the concept of climate change as a whole because we're doing things that I'm sure you're going to get to, like turning prairies into deserts, and we're doing things like dumping mercury and acid into our oceans. And, and that can't help but affect climatary systems because the whole thing's interconnected. Well, it's all interconnected, and I, I do believe that the physics is correct on the CO2, but it's one of those things where it's a complex interconnected system, and good climate scientists... They model all the things. So, for instance, in in the last few years, and that's like number two is the climate change, but in the last few years, we've had a solar minimum. So here in the Northern Hemisphere, where most of the aerosol pollutants go in, you have a combination of CO2 that's tending to raise the temperatures, but also in the, in the more central latitudes of the Northern Hemisphere, you have a lot of aerosol pollutants that are cooling the atmosphere. And then you have a solar minimum, which is causing less solar gain to come to the, come to the planet. So you have two cooling things counteracting to one warming thing. So for the last few years in the central latitudes in the northern hemisphere, it's looked like we're back to business as usual and climate change and global warming was a farce. But the climate scientists are looking at all these things saying, no, that's exactly what the models predict. But if you go to the far north, 
like in you know in in Alaska and in Canada, they've had incredibly warm winters for the last few years. So it's been here here we've been like having cold, freezing, you know, sucky winters like they used to be in the Northeast and the Midwest. But from the far north, it's been the total opposite. They've been incredibly warm. The sea ice is melting, and I was on the phone in May with Slave Lake in, I think it's Manitoba. And this is a, a community that's like a vacation community with just surrounded by trees. And I was under, I had an eight-foot snowpack at my house in the high Sierras of California in late May, and 2,000 miles north of me, the whole town was burning down. There was hundreds of thousands of acres on fire, and, and most of the town burnt to the ground, and there's nothing they could do about it. And here it is. I was blown away because we had this wet, killer winter at our house, and yet 2,000 miles north of us, they were like bone dry and 20 degrees warmer than normal and had a horrendous fire season when they should have been still under snow. You know, here's why I, here's, I have two big problems with the whole global warming due to CO2 thing. And, and we won't go there too deep because I don't make it a, a policy to, to debate guests. I bring them on to say what they have to say. And I think the, the, the change is an issue regardless of what causes it. But primary, and this has been confirmed in two recent studies done by NASA, that there has always been a belief that CO2 behaved differently in the upper atmosphere than in the, the main atmosphere to compensate for something called the CO2 saturation limit. And what that means is CO2, regardless of its concentration in the atmosphere, can only absorb effectively and reflect certain wavelengths of light. And the concentrations to a point where pretty much all of those wavelengths of light are being reflected, it, it's hit a saturation point. You could double it, and, and, and the, these other waves of light simply pass through it. it does, it'll catch a couple here and there, but it really can't have a major effect. The, 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 the out for the researcher has always been, well, that's not how it acts up in the troposphere. So NASA runs these these uh, tests where they measure the radiation in versus the radiation out, and they expect to find this differential and find this, because they want to confirm this, because they want to kill this silver bullet uh, thing that we've known since the 1800s about the saturation limit, and they go, oh, whoops, uh, yeah, it just looks like that doesn't happen. So Well, I'll, I'll have to look into that. I'm not, I can't debate on it one way or the other, because yeah. that's something that I haven't actually heard of and looked into. But I do know most of the scientists in the world, and it's not 100% of them, and then my other thing, my other thing, Matt, just honestly, is is not Climate Gate one, but now Climate Gate two. And if you look at these scientists that are supposed to be so credible about this, and you see their conversations between each other uh, about the way they're cooking this data, I, I just I, I don't have any belief in any of it. But yet I do understand that if we turn a, a, a prairie into a desert. Uh, that's going to affect our climate. If we mine coal and put mercury into our oceans, that's going to affect our climate. Like you say, if we acidify the oceans and we create dead zones in the oceans, two different things, that'll change our climate. But I, I don't want to beat this up. I just okay. My audience knows my stance on this. If I don't say something, they're going to be like, dude, why didn't you say something? I understand. Hey, hey, and that's fine. And I'm open to looking at it. And for instance, there was a Danish guy that came out a few years ago, and he he said, hey, this is, you know, he, and he made a model which looked very accurate and was accurate in the short run. And it looked like it was, a lot of scientists looked and said, hey, maybe he's got a point here. Maybe he's right. Well, they looked into it, they found some math errors, and they found that it just wasn't right and didn't pan out. But the scientists of the world were saying, hey, you know, this, this would be great. You know, most scientists think like, hey, if there's something we haven't seen and we're not aware of, contradicts it, then that's terrific. I'd love to say, hey, don't worry about it because my CO2 is you want me in the world, but, you know, whatever. So let's, Let's move on because we all know the weather. Agreed. Whatever's causing it, we all know it's different, and 
is causing problems all over the world. And, well, and, and I'll, I've always put it this way too, Matt. Um, it, it, not that long ago, if we look at the entire history of the Earth, there was a giant sheet of ice covering the entire state of New York and further south. And we're only talking right. 12,000 years. So regardless of what causes it, the fact that the climate can change rapidly is well-known and well-documented. And whether we blame the guy with the Hummer or Mother Nature, we better damn well be prepared for it to happen. Well, and obviously in the past, when it's flipped one way or the other, it was not the guy with the Hummer. It was Mother Nature, whether it was volcanic activity or... Or the pull of when the when the orbit gets longer because Jupiter and Saturn lined up with the Earth and I had a big conversation with Steve Schneider before he died of cancer and and he was talking about documenting times in the past when it happened because of the orbits lining up and and, and temporarily pulling Earth into a larger orbit and then similarly we have periods where the Earth went into an orbit that went closer to the Sun caused more from the Sun. But he said, right now, it's pretty clear we're not in one of those periods, and it's what human beings are doing that's causing it, and not volcanoes, and not the sun, and, sure. and etc. Okay, so back to the ocean. Uh, a very disturbing thing about the ocean is the uh, phytoplankton loss. We had, there's a, a British Royal Society study that showed that 73% of the, of the zooplankton in the oceans has disappeared since 1960, and half of that decline has happened in the last two decades. So what we're seeing is the bottom of the food chain starting to go away, and the phytoplankton's, which are similar, but you know they use sun instead of eating things like the zooplankton, they're also disappearing, but not as not as bad as the zooplankton's, but they're kind of following in their footsteps. So if those go away, then we've lost the carbon-oxygen cycle in the world, and we won't have a livable planet for human beings. I mean, I'm sure there'll be other life forms that will be happy, because uh, a lot of their competitors will have gone away, including us. Now, number four is the forests, and uh, the forests have a direct impact on the world's weather for more than one reason. One is called desertification. So each giant tree, now I've never verified this number, but it's out of Tom Hartman's book, Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, and it seems kind of amazing, and sort of out there, but supposedly every large tree, whether it's a, a huge redwood or a giant oak, has the equivalent of a 20 acres lake worth of evaporative surface area on its needles and leaves. So each tree in the world, each large tree, not little tree, but large tree, acts like a giant water pump. So when the rain falls, the tree, its deep roots go down and it breaks up the rocks and, and minerals and makes soil. And it also pumps water, recycles the water back into the atmosphere and so that it can fall downwind as, as more rain. So when you cut all the trees down, you have something called desertification going on. And that's what you talk about, like the prairies turning into desert. Absolutely. And for instance, uh, in between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, in what's now known as Iraq, used to be called the Fertile Crescent. It's where mankind grew up first, where civilization got its start because it was such a perfect Garden of Eden kind of climate for human beings to grow in. So they made farms, they made cities, they cut the trees down, they, they did irrigation, and irrigation eventually called saltification, salinization in the soil, and uh, so the climate changed. It went from being the Fertile Crescent to, you know, to Iraq, the big giant dust bowl and, and desert. You know, you're dead on, and I'll give you something that will help confirm your your uh, 20 acres. 
there's a gentleman named Bill Molston who's the founder of a, a technology, uh, not really the founder of, but sure. the re- resurrect of the concept of permaculture. And in one of his lectures, he was taught, actually his, his protege, Jeff Lawton, was talking about Bill's work back in the 80s, and science has just confirmed this now, where he was stating that if you looked at water from rainfall and you yeah. measured its density, that the water from rainfall that was created by forest versus lake or oceanic effect would be slightly more dense. And, you know, he's saying this in 82, and people say this old black that lives in the woods and, you know, whatever. But now science has actually investigated this and determined that there's a huge significant portion of our rainfall that we've been attributing to, to you know, ocean and, and lake effect rain that's actually attributable to the forest, and that we can actually find, by if we go down to the molecular level, see both types of water in a single rainfall. And if, when you want to talk about climate change, if you get rid of a few million acres of forest, buddy, you're changing the climate. Well, if you look at the CO2 in the atmosphere in terms of not just climate change, but also acidification, it turns out that the contribution of the CO2 in the atmosphere every single year in the world, the contribution from cutting down forests and deforestation is equal, it's, it's equal to 24%, and that's equal to the total of both the transportation sector, which is all the planes, trains, and automobiles in the world, and boats, as well as the industrial sector, like all the belching smokestacks and all of the cement plants in the world, those two together are roughly equal to the contribution of deforestation. So, you know, we're, we're soiling the nest of the planet. So let's get on to the next one, the food. Food crisis is a combination where, uh, of Changes in the soils, where essentially factory farming methods is flushing the topsoil. It took millions of years for Mother Nature to build and grow in our planet. We're just flushing it away with our way of of modern factory farming. And a combination of unsustainable use of water. I mean, we have six major rivers in the world, including the uh, Colorado River in the western United States and the Yellow River in China that no longer reach the ocean or barely or or reach the ocean for parts of the year just as a toxic brown little trickle. And these are ocean rivers that used to flow as big giant rivers in the ocean year round. Like in China first in the seventies, the Yellow River didn't flow for like two weeks out of the year. Well in recent years there's been almost three hundred days out of the year where it hasn't reached the ocean. And that we're also pumping water unsustainably. So about fifteen percent of the world's cropland is irrigated. But that irrigated cropland makes something like 40 or 45 percent of our food. So if we're unsustainably using irrigation water and, and we, we run to the end of that line, then a, a world that's having trouble feeding its people will have even a lot more trouble. Now this all comes to the last one, which is really the elephant in the room that for some reason the last couple decades has been kind of taboo in the media in America to talk about, but that's the population. Now, when I was a kid, in the 1960s, we had 3 billion people. And then in the year 1999-2000, we hit 6 billion. And then uh, October, just last month, we hit the world's 7th billion people. So, now get this number into your head. When, when Jesus walked the earth, from the time Jesus walked the earth till the time Abraham Lincoln was born, Fewer people were added to our world's population than we added in the last 10 years. So think of that. From the time Jesus walks the world till Abraham Lincoln, less people were added to the population of our world than the last 10 years. And from the time 
the the new millennium started, the year 2000 started, till October, end of October of this year, we added more people to our planet than the entire world's population in the year 1800. So, so every 11 to 12 years now, we will supposedly keep adding an entire 1800 world population to our planet. It just can't keep it up. So right now we're in, we're in a, uh, what the ecologists call overshoot. And uh, nature doesn't deal kindly with overshoot. In fact, uh, I'd like to give you an example of that. Uh, in typical in nature, overshoot and collapse is like a real common thing. So, and just to give you the classic example of this, back in 1944, some people got this smart idea that they were going to put some reindeer on a little island in the Bering Strait called St. Matthew's Island. It's a 128-square-mile spot of land in the middle of a frigid sea, and they figured that, you know, if some people got sea-wrecked uh, or, you know, shipwrecked at sea, and they needed this as a source of food, they'd be there, or if, you know, there was a war from Russia and the soldiers needed food, they'd be there, etc. So they thought it'd be a cool idea. So they, they put um, something like 20, 29 of these animals. By 1957, these 29 deer had multiplied to 1,350. And in 1963, the population exceeded 6,000 reindeer on this little spot of land in the Bering Sea. Well, according to ecologists, this size of land could only sustainably support maybe 1,500 deer maximum. So what did these 6,000 deer do? Well, they ate everything in sight. The soil washed away. The, they started starving to death and dying. And so in three years' time, these 6,000 reindeer crashed down to 42 reindeer in 1966. So 6,000 died off to 42. Not very good. Uh, not very good prognosis. And in the 1970s, the last sick, sickly, lonely reindeer died on St. Matthew's Island in the 1970s. They had totally soiled the nest, totally screwed it up, so it couldn't even support a single reindeer anymore. Let me, let me bounce this that's what we're doing. Real, quick, real quick, just because this kind of sums that whole thing up. Another thing from Mollison, uh, out of permaculture world, the probability of extinctions of a species is at its greatest when the densities of its population are extremely high, or extremely low. And I think you just explained both that beautifully. Because that's exactly, we went from high density to low density to gone. Right, right. So, one, people sometimes wonder, you know, I'm an MIT engineer and they say, well, my first book was called When Technology Fails. And people say, well, why would an MIT engineer write a book like that? Well, back in 1997, at that point in time, I had a 20 year practice of prayer and meditation. And not fanatic about it, you know, but it's just kind of a nice way to start my day. And sometimes I'd ask for help with difficult engineering problems and that I wasn't, you know, not doing so well with using my mental tools and, and pictures just snapped into my head and I'd be like, oh, thanks for the pictures, you know, thanks for the solution. That's much better than what I could think of. Well, anyway, in 1997, I just asked generically for guidance and inspiration. I got a bomb dropped in my lap on that day. I received a a pictorial storyboard type outline for my book, When Technology Fails. You know, roughly 30 or 40 pictures dumped into my head instantaneously. And my first thought was, you know, no way, expletive deleted. And uh, I don't know all this stuff. And the little, the little voice in my head, Jesus calls it the still small voice, it said, it assured me that nobody knew it all. And assured me also that I had the skills and talents that should I choose to take the assignment on, and it always felt like, 
never my idea, that I'd get the inner and outer help I needed to complete the book. Well, it took me like a year to decide maybe it was a good idea and I could actually do it, another year to write a proposal and a couple hundred pages of sample chapters and then another year and find a publisher and then another year to really bite the bullet and rack up the credit cards and borrow against my house and, and you know, hire artists and buy all the research books, uh, like $6,000 in research books to complete the project. And then in 2008, I put another year and another few thousand in research books into a, a massive update in 2008. So that book was essentially a manual or a handbook to help people, A, live more sustainably and self-reliantly while the work, world is still working well, and B, cope with the various bumps along the road and as we head towards this perfect storm and if we do everything right, we're going to have some major bumps in the road. And if we do, and if we don't do it all right, we're going to have a total collapse of the world as we know it. And so C is how do we, how do I preserve and teach the knowledge of like my grandparents' time when someone in every town, there was every town in America had someone who knew how to make, grow, or fabricate whatever was necessary to lead a reasonable standard of living, you know, not not a 20th century high-tech, but like an 8th century standard of living, rather than falling back into a Mad Max caveman scenario. So so that was the intention of that book, and it's a pretty massive book, and people have complained it was too big to fit in their grab-and-run kit, but had great information, and some people said, I don't care about, you know, the collapse of the world, I just want to know how to prep and how to deal with various crises, so I came up with my new book, uh, When Disaster Strikes. It just printed uh, officially the 18th of November is when it the official release date. And uh, that book is focused on on getting your prepping and preparation act together in the first third of the book. And the second third of the book is teaching people how to uh, the, the essential skills, tools, and techniques that you need. So like personal protection, self-defense, staying healthy in this pandemic or crisis, Water purification and storage and, and communications, emergency communication. And then the last final seven chapters of the book in the new book just focuses on specific disasters and crises, such as fire, earthquakes, hurricanes and floods, severe winter weather without heat or power, solar storms and EMP. That's a really big, big item that's a very real threat that's on a lot of people's mind. And the last one is surviving the, the unthinkable, surviving a nuclear catastrophe. So, there's certainly some crossover between the two books. I mean, the emergency survival stuff is pretty much the same with some minor updates in the new book. And the, uh, the built-in, the built-in first aid chapter is pretty much the same in both books. There's some minor updates in the new book. But like I said, there's, there's a whole bunch of new information in the new book that's not there in the old one. And there's all this how to, how to survive the end of the world stuff in the old book that's definitely not in the new one. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure that there's links to both of Matt's books in the show notes, folks, and uh, definitely recommend you check them out. I haven't read his first book, uh, but I've been reading over uh, his latest book, and it's absolutely uh, fabulous. Um, one of the things you mentioned there was uh, nuclear issues, and whenever we think of that, we generally have a tendency to wax back to the 1970s or further back, like to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and think that a nuclear catastrophe is either acute like Fukushima in one place or Chernobyl in one place, or that it is going to be uh, two superpowers launching nukes at each other. And those are the two worlds that we can get our heads around and see and fear. 
You have something you're working on called 400 Chernobyls. What's that all about? Okay. Well, there's roughly there's roughly 441 uh, nuclear power plants in the world right now, nuclear reactors. And each of these current design reactors, the way they work is they've got fuel rods that are highly radioactive uranium or plutonium or combination devices. And then there's something called control rods in the middle of them that kind of keeps those fuel rods from, like, going crazy and blowing up and melting themselves down. Now, in a normal reactor, uh, there's a huge amount of coolant, like millions of gallons of coolant, running through them every minute, keeping keeping this high-energy reaction from overheating. And so when all of a sudden there's a, a problem in control of the reactor, then it's designed so the fail-safe is at the control rods, which suck up neutrons and keep the reaction from going out of control, slam down in between the pool rods to, to start shutting the reactor down. What people don't realize is that you have to keep cooling these things for the next year to decommission a reactor before you, before the reaction is slowed down enough to where you can, like, stop the coolant and not worry that it's going to burn up and melt down like happened in Fukushima and happened in Chernobyl. Now, it turns out, so in... in in Fukushima, what happened was the earthquake itself did not cause the power plants to burn to burn up and melt down and fail. What caused the failure was that when they lost power to keep the coolant flowing, they went into the shutdown mode and the backup diesel generators to keep the coolant flowing for the next year so that they wouldn't melt down while they gradually slowed the reaction down. They were started for a little bit, but then the tsunami came and wiped out the backup generators. So without a grid to keep coolant flowing, and without the backup generators to keep coolant flowing, then the fuel rods started melting down and started causing hydrogen gas uh, to form, and that caused explosions that reached the, the vessel. Well, it's, it's a widespread problem whenever this happens, like in Fukushima and Chernobyl. But what people don't realize is that Every reactor in the world is just as vulnerable to loss of coolant and loss of grid as Chernobyl and Fukushima were. Well, in Chernobyl, it was actually an explosion that happened when they didn't realize there was a failure of the control system and it blew its top. But in Fukushima, it was just the coolant that, that failed. The reactor did what it was supposed to do when it lost the power to it, and it and the, the control rods did the fail-safe thing of slamming into the fuel rods and trying to, and slowing down the reaction, but without the coolant, it blew its top. Now, people say, well, okay, um, we always have backup power, right? We have backup generators and all the reactors in the world, so what's the problem? Well, the problem is that when there's a major solar storm, like ha- happens according to ice core samplings, on an average of about every 60 or 70 years on the planet, we get these huge solar storms that hit the planet. And the last one that happened was 1921, before the days of modern electronics, before the days of a widespread grid, before the days of microelectronics, and certainly before the days of nuclear reactors. So when one of these big solar storms happens, they induce such giant voltage spikes of thousands of volts and, and thousands of amps in long runs of wire that without redesigning our grid to protect these transformers, the next time a solar storm happens, it's going to fry the massive transformers to keep our grid going all across the planet. Now, the only parts of the planet that 
uh, might come through okay are the, are the tropical zones because the Earth's magnetic field concentrates these effects towards the north and south poles. Problem is that the Earth's magnetic field is also in a weakened state right now, and so it's not clear in the next solar storm hits, and when it hits, because they do hit, uh, and they hit throughout history, it's not clear whether the tropical zones will be protected like they were in the past or not. That, that, that's kind of like a big experiment. Anyway, so imagine we have this big solar storm hit, hits like happened in uh, 1821 was the last one, and before that it was two back-to-back storms five days apart in 1859, called the Carrington event. So if one of those were to hit today, then all the reactors in the world, the grid would the grid would collapse for all practical purposes for every part of the world except the tropical zones, and those are even in question. And suddenly, all these reactors would go into into fail-safe shutdown mode, and their backup generators would kick in. Well, many of the backup generators might get fried right off the bat by the storm, but but let's say they all survive the storm. Well, a week later, they're going to run out of diesel fuel. Now, the government of our country has said, don't worry, we're going to make sure every single nuclear power plant in the country gets their diesel fuel, like clockwork, every week for the next year until those reactors are decommissioned. Now, when the, when the grid has collapsed and nothing's working, like happened in, in, in Hurricane Katrina, you know, imagine that happening all over the, the world as we know it. Uh, it's certainly all except for the tropical zone. And now imagine that our government, the, the stock exchange has collapsed, Washington, D.C. has collapsed, there's no food deliveries, there's no refrigeration, there's no Internet, there's no just-in-time deliveries. All those things have stopped. But they're going to make sure that diesel fuel trucks show up like clockwork at every nuclear power plant in the country. It's like, yeah. What, you know, sure. and I believe in the tooth fairy and Santa Claus. Well, and, and my, my statement would be, even if somehow they did it, we're screwed. At that point, we're screwed anyway. And what type of military crackdown would be necessary to ensure that the diesel fuel could get there? Uh, assuming they had vehicles that have been protected so they could do this and get them there, because you know in a situation like this, people are going to, anything that's moving, hey, there's a resource, I want it. Right. Of course, of course. And how many of those military guys are going to stay there when their families are starving, and there's pandemonium in the towns, and nothing's working? How many of those guys are going to stay at their posts and do as they're told when they're needed at home? I mean... It's a, it's a, it's a scary situation. Now, the thing is that there are solutions to the problem. And there are people who are studying this. And so far the government's paid for the studies, but hasn't paid for any solutions. No implementation, no proactive measures to prevent this, this giant meltdown from occurring. And the thing is that this is a guaranteed event to happen. I mean, these, the ice core scientific studies, they look at the nitrites in the air in the ice cores, and they can tell when these solar storms happen by some isotopes in the nitrates. And they've been able to, you know, look back throughout history. Well, it turns out the 1859 event, well, that's a really big event. They, they happen perhaps every 500 to 1,000 years or so. But the 1921 event, which is 10 times as strong as the 1989 event that, that fried a power transformer in Hydro-Quebec and 
cut power to nine million people for six hours, and uh, and partially melted down the transformer at Three Mile Island, another one in the UK. Well, you know, the 1921 event is ten times as strong as anything that we've seen since microelectronics have been around, and the microelectronics is much more susceptible to this stuff than the old-fashioned electronics. And the grid, you know, last time we had a big event like 1921 was pre-grid days, and yeah, it burned down some telegraph stations and it burned down some power power stations, but, you know, the the world was used to not going, you know, didn't have much electricity in those days, and was just fine without it. Well, today with 7 million people, we don't have horses and buggies everywhere. You can't just hike over the hill to your local farmer and trade and barter for food. At least most people in America can't. And uh, so we're not in a situation where grid down and internet down and and uh, power plants melting down is 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 something that isn't going to just totally screw the pooch for us. Well, and what scares me about this is you know you talk about peak oil, and I can see an economic disaster like you you can't even imagine associated with a peak oil scenario. I can see right. all types of misery with a peak oil scenario, but I also know exactly what peak oil looks like. Because I know what Cuba looked like after the fall of the Soviet Union. Cuba went through peak oil. There's still people there. They're rebuilding. And some of the highest paid wage earners in Cuba today are farmers. And they're much more ecologically friendly. So I've actually, we can look at Cuba as a case study. And we can debate on their power of community there stronger than, you know, the affluent ass clowns in America. And it probably is. But you can see the the transition path through the problem and what it looks like. I cannot see the transition uh, of society through uh, 400 uh, nuclear uh, disasters. I, I can't see it. No. I can't see it either, or just break down for several years. I mean, the problem, see, with an EMP, that's like a, a nuke that's thrown by a terrorist state and, and blown off, say, 40 to 120 miles above the East Coast. An EMP would cause more disruptive problems with, with electronics locally than a solar storm will, but it won't have the same wide-ranging effects on the grid because there will be, most of the world will still be unaffected by the EMP, so you'll have all of this technology and manufacturing might around the world to come in and help out where the EMP was. Problem but I'll qualify that, is, but I'd like to qualify that with a, a maybe because we just had this thing where six million people went without power. Uh, in California and New Mexico and all. One tech went out to one satellite location and changed one piece of equipment. He didn't even do anything. He did everything right. Nothing actually right. broke, but it caused some kind of blip, even though he followed procedure, and it shut 6 million people down for 48 hours. Mm-hmm. And he didn't do anything wrong. And, I mean, they, they looked at it and said he right. did everything right, and they don't even really know why it occurred. It shouldn't have. Um, right. And it created a cascade. So who knows if we well, shut down 30% of the grid in the East Coast, what kind of cascade it would, would cause? We don't really know. Oh, well, you'll have a cascade, and you'll have a problem, and you'll probably have nuclear meltdowns, because in the East Coast, in an EMP, the, the programmable logic controllers, PLCs, and the DLCs, digital, digital control systems, DCSs, and the SCADAs, which is the uh, sensing control... The supervisory control and data acquisition systems, those are like the eyes, nose, and ears that runs our chemical refineries and our nuclear power plants and all that. You can't have little guy white coats running around inside a nuclear reactor. It's all done remotely. So in an EMP, the E1 effect that happens in nanoseconds, which is like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second, that tends to cook microelectronics instantly. So you'll have all of these 
all of a sudden, all the control systems would be screwed, and probably the backup diesel generators will fail because of the failures. Like when they when they did an EMP test in the Soviet Union over Kazakhstan, they similar to the one they did over Johnston Island in the South Pacific of the United States. This is a nuclear thermonuclear device detonated above ground to study EMP. They had EMP effects that were orders of magnitude stronger than what the physicists had predicted, so they realized that they hadn't correctly analyzed it. And the nuclear the, the power generator backup diesels killed in the Soviet Union in Kazakhstan when under the EMP. So chances are good that the backup generators, unless they're specifically hardened for EMP, will fail. And but would, wouldn't we think that they would have hardened these systems? You would think. I mean, but, you know, it's pretty private blatantly obvious that that would be one to actually take the resources and use the harden, but from what you're telling me, the research you've done, they really haven't. No. Well, I mean, there's some simple things that could be done. They could make sure they could mandate that all the electronic systems and backup power systems and power plants must be hardened for EMP, and that they should also have um, spares on hand that are not actually hooked up, because EMP tends to affect things most that are actually hooked up to wires because those act like antennas and they get the induced currents and voltage spikes in them. So if you can store some stuff in a metal container, like a metal storage container, that's a big Faraday box, then your your electronics that's not hooked up to anything and stored in big big metal boxes are chances are are going to be fine for EMP. So we could easily, for the price of two days of the Gulf War, we could probably install backup um, protection for both solar storms and EMPs on all the major power transformers the grid relies upon, and we could provide backup power generation protection and a year's supply of diesel fuel at every nuclear power plant in, in the country. Which and begs the question, why the hell won't they do it? You know, it's, it's just the same question you can ask of when, when the... U.S. Army Corps of Engineers for 50 years knew that that New Orleans was a disaster waiting to happen. They looked at it and they said, "Look, it's not when, it's not if the next hurricane hits; it's when the next hurricane hits." And they had plans. And they said, "This is what we got to do." And, and we're the engineers, and we're the smart guys, and we know what to do. But the powers that be said, "It's not sexy. It ain't broke. Don't fix it. I want to spend the money somewhere else." So for 50 years. They put the money somewhere well, else. Well, it's even worse there because the Fed gave the state of Louisiana the money. And oh, so really? here's, yeah, they gave, the money was given to the state of Louisiana. They spent it on other stuff. They had, well, Louisiana and New Orleans and, and, and the parishes down there had money appropriated for the improvements given to them by the Fed and they spent them on other things. Well, think about how much money was spent on the bailout of the banks in Wall Street. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could spend, take a fraction of that and put American workers back to work building infrastructure for America that can withstand the next super solar storm, building the infrastructure to protect ourselves from nuclear meltdowns, and building the infrastructure to go beyond nuclear, to go beyond fossil fuel, so that when when the oil and the, and the uranium depletes, that we have an alternative. Now, I just read there's... A radioactive material called thorium that could power our power plants in America for the next thousand years at our current rate of usage. It's, the it's correct. Is, They're not doing anything with it. The problem is that thorium did not make 
any byproducts that could be used to make nuclear weapons. So back when right. they made the decisions which way to go in America, they said, we're going with uranium because we can, uranium and plutonium will give us bombs and thorium won't. Now, yeah, it turns out that China and India are both working on second generation, on next generation reactors based on thorium, that they're all doing that. And for some reason here in America, we're not. And it's like it, someone's got their head at the wrong place. It's, uh, it, it is. It's a head up the ass. And I'll, I'll tell you how bad it really is, Matt. Um, a thorium reactor, you just talked about 400 Chernobyls. If we have a shutdown in a thorium reactor, do you know what happens? It just stops. It doesn't yeah, go in a meltdown. It doesn't blow up because it's not a weapons-based technology. It's not designed to do that. And I think that, I mean, to understand the ridiculous level that we're doing with current nuclear technology, we're using weapons-based technology to all for everything taken out of the way and make it simple, boil water. That's right. it. That's what we're doing. We're using we're a nuclear water. bomb under controlled situation to boil water. That's right. It's pretty simple. So it's like we've got the solutions, but just like New Orleans, we're not putting them into place, and we're not spending the money on the fixes. All we're doing is talking about it right now. And one of the reasons I'm talking on shows and one of the reasons I'm writing this 400 Chernobyl's article that's going to hit the mainstream media within the next week or two, and if if I don't get into New York Times or San Francisco Chronicle or the Christian Science Monitor, then I will post it on Huffington Post. So it'll at least hit Huffington Post within one to two weeks. And uh, one of the reasons I'm doing this is, you know, wake up call. It's like, come on, guys. It's like, you really want to see the end of the world as you know it? Just because you procrastinated and hoped it wasn't so? That's like being the ostrich in the sand, head in the sand, just pretending everything's going to be okay. Just don't worry. It's like, bull, you know, every 60, 70 years, one of these storms hits the planet. We're 20 years overdue for the next one. Could happen any day. We're hitting this solar maximum right now. Could happen tomorrow. Could happen next week. Could happen next year. Could happen in the next decade. I don't know. Nobody knows. But we do know sooner or later we're going to deal with it. And and the reality is we don't know exactly what it's going to do. And anybody that says they they do is full of crap. But we can also surmise it's probably not going to be good. Well, if we're really lucky... In 2003, it was either 2003 or 6, there was one of these storms that hit South Africa, and it caused 14 of their large power transformers to either even totally cook or be significantly damaged. And it resulted in rolling blackouts for the next year and a half throughout the country. And imagine how hard it is to do business when you've got a, a shopping center, and for six hours of the day, at some point in the day, it loses power. And your refrigerators all start thawing, your freezers start thawing, there's no lights. Unless you get your own backup generator, you're screwed. That's what they saw. So if we're really lucky, we'll get a, a nasty wake-up call that's disruptive and screws everything up really badly, but not totally. And, and not like the 1921 storm would do or the 1859 back-to-back storms would do. So if we're lucky, we get the wake-up call. If we're unlucky, we get the 1921 or 1859 storm or somewhere on those effects. And uh, and the world as we know it goes bye bye. Yeah, I'll tell you one. Of, I mean, I don't think what people get is is how intense these things are. In the 1859 storm, we didn't have uh, anywhere near any type of electrical infrastructure. But what we did have was telegraph lines, and that right. was the, you know the main means of communication. Uh, you know, over more than a couple miles, and in several places, those wires literally caught on fire and burned to the ground. And there there was a lot less of, let's say, a receiving antenna sitting out there than there is today. 
There's a heat. I mean, the, the grid is really the, the above ground part of the grid for this type of activity is a giant receiver. And it's not, not designed to receive, ground. but that's what it's going to do. Not just above ground. In the Soviet Union Kazakhstan test, yep. they had an 800 mile buried line, two meters Dude. under the ground. And it burned up the power station on the other end because two meters on, I, it blows my mind. Two meters under the ground. So this isn't line. a part of it took the energy in and ran along the lines. This is it literally went through the ground, was absorbed and, and did its thing just like it was exposed. It, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It, it induced thousands of volts and thousands of amps in a, in a major trunk line buried two meters under the ground and 700 miles away. That was enough to burn down a power station. Wow. So, yeah. Well, you know, we've, we've gone over an hour now. You've, you've given us a lot of stuff to be afraid of, um, and legitimate stuff to be afraid of. And you've, of course, you've got two great books out to tell people how to prepare for this stuff. But as we wrap up, can you give people some of your things that you think that's important that people do now to solidify their positions in life so they can best deal with from the acute situation to these major end of the world type scenarios? Well, definitely, no matter how much money you have, try to put together a 72-hour survival kit so at least you can get out of town Whether and make sure you have the ability to put on your back. That provides food, shelter, clothing, first aid, and, and basic medicine for you and your family and water. Water and water purification. Now, there's a full list of items that I recommend at wentechfails.com under articles. Just go to my website, wentechfails, W-H-E-N-T-E-C-H-F-A-I-L-S.com Totally free information. So that's and I'll number put links one. to that. I'll put links to that in the show notes so it's easy for people to get to. Okay. Number two, start developing your self-reliant skills. A lot of people in this economy say, well, I don't have any money. You know, I'd love to have five acres off grid, but that's out of reach for 99.9% of us. And that's correct. It is out of reach for most of us. But what you can do is start working in your community garden. Start getting used to growing with food, you know, digging in the dirt. Get those skills developed. Number three, start learning your foraging skills. See, this, this story was told to me by a guy on a sh- radio show from Arizona who, who teaches uh, wilderness survival, primitive living skills. Might have been Cody Lundin before I had any clue who he was. And he said that in his classes, typically the men and women split into two different groups for the last three days where you go out and you're You basically can't bring any fish hooks, guns, knives, nothing. You just have the clothes in your back, and you have to use the skills you learn for for foraging and for making rudimentary tools in that you learn during the class. So then in these last three days, the men would focus on hunting and fishing, the men's group. He said almost always it went this way. And the women's group would focus on foraging for edible fruits, nuts, berries, tubers, things like that. Well, come day three, the women usually take pity on the starving men and invite them to, to join their group and share some of the bounty that they foraged for. And in, in Korea, you're talking about peak oil scenario. In Korea was the, was the flip side of the coin, Cuba, experiencing peak oil. When the Soviet Union collapsed, the supply line for oil and energy and spare parts and technology, both to Cuba and to North Korea, just went away in a heartbeat. Well, people in North Korea, if you weren't part of the government pipeline to food and goods, you were on your own. And it was massive. Many millions of people starved and died in the winter. They got cold and sick because they had no calories in their body. And people lived by foraging. There was not a mouse or a rat 
or bug to be found anywhere, and people were taking bark and leaves and, and grass roots and, and surviving that way. So your ability to forage, your, your ability to identify edible plants and herbs can put you miles ahead of the pack in a situation like this. What are your yeah. thoughts on people now developing the skill set around food production as well? Because like you said, the problem with the foraging thing is even the people that don't know, they either die and starve or figure it out real fast and land gets strip mined. Yeah. So to me, one of, and, and that's the, that, that was the big difference for Cuba and how they really kind of came through it better is with a tropical climate and a long growing season, they were able to switch over to an organic style agriculture system. Now, it wasn't easy. It took them almost five years because of the, the, they, they joined the green revolution was the problem. And, uh, right. there's a right. DVD. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called The Power of Community, How Cuba Survived Peak Oil. I'd recommend that to anyone. Uh, no, I think I've got it on my shelf and haven't read it. I've got to dig it out because it's one I want to see. And, yeah, uh, it's, it's, I thought awesome. I ordered it. Yeah. But they, because they already had this predisposition toward agriculture, they were able to move in that direction quicker. And to me, that's one of the big things we need to be doing. Yes, we need to store food. Yes, we need to be prepared to leave if we have to. But we should start focusing on food production skills now because the first year you have a garden or even like try to grow permaculture systems or whatever, it's going to suck. It's not going to work. It's going to take time. Yeah. And I agree that food production, you know, developing all of these different things, and it really takes a village to pull through. And so, you know, not any one person can know and do it all, but by working together in a community, you can guard each other's backs, you can fill in the skills and tools that somebody else doesn't have, or, or vice versa, and definitely developing your ability to grow food is a huge one. So, developing your self-reliance skills, you know, if you don't have money, you can develop skills and knowledge. Because in the time when things fall apart, the money doesn't count. It's the skills and knowledge that counts. You know, in your ability to grow food or produce food or heal people or forage or hunt, you know, all of these things are valuable skills to know and do that will make you someone that people want to have around as part of their community. I, I completely agree. And I think that's a big thing that the survival community... Uh, at times, I wouldn't say so much this audience, but overall, in general, they get this isolationist mentality, and I don't see anybody, no, how, how matter, how, no matter how well prepared they may be, surviving these types of scenarios on their own. I, I just don't see it as possible. Well. I agree. Certainly, if they did survive on their own, it's not a very pleasant existence. But, uh, you know, humans are social animals. They do better in groups than they do alone. And like I said, no one can know and do it all. That's for sure. Well, Matt, this has been an awesome interview. Um, the books, again, folks, are When Technology Fails and When Disaster Strikes. I'll have links to both of those, uh, links to Matt, Matthew Stein's uh, websites and resources he's mentioned today uh, in today's show notes. And, uh, Matt, I'd love to have you back on the show again. Um, I have a ton of questions I could just keep on asking you, but we're over an hour ten now. Um, and I actually feel that usually the best follow-up interviews are when my audience gets together in our comments section and they ask the questions, and we have you back to answer those. So would you be interested in doing that sometime in the future? Oh, sure. Be, be happy to be back on. Just uh, let me know when. We'll put together our calendars and make it happen. And I like to leave people with my motto. And my motto is I, I ask everyone to do their best to change the world and to do their best to be ready for the changes in the world. And thank you so much for having me on today. It's been a real pleasure. 
Uh, absolutely. The pleasure has been mutual. I'm really uh, glad I was able to bring you on for the audience. And I think we agree with uh, the, the, the change thing so that they don't change honest types. And I always put it this way to folks that if we have, if you called me over to your house and said, tell me everything I need to do if the house catches on fire, I'd say, well, we can make an evacuation plan and a, you know, a rally point plan and all that stuff. But before we do that, let's just start figuring out how to keep the house from catching on fire. So hopefully there's enough impetus for change over the next decade, and we have that long, that we can fix some of these things before we have to deal with this stuff. But if not, uh, resources like your books, your websites, uh, hopefully this show can help people deal with that as it comes. So again, thank you for being here today. You're welcome, and have a great day. All right, and with that, folks, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Matthew Stein, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.